Welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. We have a great episode for you today. Just one story, the longest story we've ever accepted, but it's a really good one and just in time for summer. I know it's not technically summer yet, but it's after Memorial Day, it's June, school will be out soon. The story is called A Multitude of Sins, and it's written and wonderfully narrated by Dan Leach. Dan Leach's short fiction has been published in various literary journals and magazines, including the Greensboro Review, Deep South Magazine, and the New Madrid Review. A Greenville native, he graduated from Clemson University in 2008 and has since taught in various high schools across South Carolina. Floods and Fires, his debut short story collection, will be published by University of North Georgia Press in 2017. Here's Dan's story, A Multitude of Sins. A Multitude of Sins We met up just after midnight beneath the sycamore in the Besser's yard. Five out of six of us in appropriate night prank attire. That is, black sweats, black cleats, black gloves, a black beanie, and for those who care to make the extra effort, a smear of your father's shoe polish on each cheek. The dress code, along with the plan itself, had been hatched earlier that same day. Somewhere between our daily pilgrimage to Wilson's Five and Dime and a vicious game of pickle, in which Teddy Wilder got pegged so hard in his left eye that the Cherry Creek rumor mill thereafter thrummed with tales of Miss Wilder ordering him a tar-heel blue velvet patch and contacting an elementary school up in North Carolina for the partially blind. Sad to say our single-minded enthusiasm about the plan probably cheated Teddy out of what sympathy he might have otherwise received. Though even in normal circumstances, such was our way. To flee from the already conquered provinces of the past towards some vague, delicious future. Midnight at the tree, wear black and bring an egg, was the official dictum. In typical Besser fashion, brothers Randy and Jody came armed with an egg apiece, but chose to exceed the official requirements by bringing two backpacks, weighed down with several boxes of baseball cards, too many bags of candy to count, a pair of binoculars, a flashlight and a walkie-talkie, neither of which had batteries, and a motley stock of tools from their father's workbench. Got to come ready, said Randy Besser, dropping the sack onto the grass and kneeling alongside it to examine one of its hundred or so zippers. Never know when something might go down. Only Jody Besser, who was removing a Pringles can from a mesh pocket sewn onto the side of his bag, felt the need to affirm Randy's wisdom, and did so by whispering, That's right now. Twice. Kenneth Sims, who had already defied our expectations simply by showing up, not only forgot to bring an egg, but also committed the nearly unforgivable oversight of donning knee-high khakis, striped tube socks, and a blindingly white t-shirt with WWJD, printed in neon green across the front. What? What'd I do? Kenny muttered, as the rest of us, black-clad and incredulous, debated whether or not to send him home. Thus, with the Besser boys bringing too much and Kenny too little, that left us, the three Duggins kids, to tip the scales back and bring something like balance to an already inauspicious night. Which I'm proud to say is exactly what we did. Ash, my older sister, Griff, the baby but also the bruiser of our clan, and myself, government name David, but more commonly known in Cherry Creek as Peach, 
all wore what we were supposed to wear, brought what we were supposed to bring, and stood ready to bridge the gap between the dream and the deed. After instructing Kenny to rub some dirt on his shirt and looking on as he reluctantly did so, six of us huddled together and waited for someone to speak, the still cold eggs catching light from a nearby street lamp and glowing like precious stones in our cupped palms. Some sprinklers hissed on at a house too far around the corner to see, and a breeze that belonged back in February cut through the dank summer air, rattling the branches of the sycamore and sending a column of ice down the spine of anyone in short sleeves. A feeling of forbidden pleasure, but also a very real fear ran through our ragged huddle. In addition to the too cold wind and the too quiet streets, our neighbors' houses, so familiar in the sunlight, had taken on an ominous quality. Their shadowy fronts and bone-white windows seized upon a pale half-moon and an absence of stars to put forth a facade of massive, frowning skulls. Feels like Halloween out here, Griff whispered, everyone present knowing exactly what he meant. And for a moment, no one said a thing. As if awaiting some cue, we knelt in the grass and listened. A far-off whippoorwill began a song, but for whatever reason cut it short. And after that, it grew so quiet that you could hear the person next to you breathing. Even with the soft, moth-flecked glow of sporadic street lamps, there was a different, deeper kind of darkness surrounding us, one entirely unrelated to the one which we had studied from our bedroom windows. There was, we knew, no use denying it. Our beloved Cherry Creek had disguised itself beyond recognition, and everything in it conspired to usher us out of the night and back to our parents' home. You don't belong here, and if you choose to stay, bad things will happen. The cold air and the black sky and especially those skulls seemed to whisper. And who among us wasn't tempted to agree? I like to think that all of us, even the stiff-lipped Bessers, secretly craved some safe, familiar thing that awaited us back home. I'd like to think that beneath all the black garb and fake bravery, all six of us secretly wondered if we hadn't made a horrible mistake by leaving our homes to face this hostile world and pursue a prank that was dangerous in a dozen different ways. Because Griff was right. It felt like Halloween. The Bible black end of Halloween. After all the little cowboys and ballerinas have been led home, and all the porch lights have gone out, and the streets you know fill up with voices you don't, and the crunch of a leaf under a shoe is enough to send you scampering into the nearest shrubs. And yet, huddled there under the sycamore, with our ever-worrying street suddenly as dim and tranquil as the bottom of a well, we came together and we said no to the night. We looked into each other's faces to smile in silent celebration of the fact that while the rest of Cherry Creek was, at that very moment, snugly tucked beneath their covers, dying their little deaths to the tune of some timid dream, six of us were alive and awake and ready as ever to raise some small form of hell. If the night had said to us, You don't belong here, then every moment we faced down the darkness and summoned the courage to stay was us saying right back to it, maybe not, but who's going to make us leave? Two additional kids, Ricky Double Sticks Dela Cruz and Christopher Crisco Snyder, had been invited. But when it became apparent that they would not, or possibly could not, come, Ash opened her mouth to address the matter at hand. Though the prank itself had been decided earlier that afternoon by the Besser boys, 
a vote concerning the prank's target, still needed to take place. If we were killing time with some amateur deal, say, ringing and running, or a flaming bag, we'd bracket the discussion, play jazz picking targets. This, though, was egging. And egging was to those other antics what Major League Baseball was to South Pines Little League. Not only was the property damage savagely more significant, but given recent reports that a kid from Cedar Hills was doing a 10-year bid down in Columbia, one year for each egg, the crime demanded far more in the way of planning. And given that the Bessers had come up with the idea, Ash, representing the Duggins, seized the opportunity to handle the execution. She extended a single black glove finger, as if to make a point of great importance. Ready to get the plan off the ground, we looked at that finger and waited for instructions. But before a single word escaped, a car whipped around the bend, its high beams bathing every last blade of grass in a white-hot flood of light. Get down, grunted Ash, dropping to the earth as if her legs had been swept out from under her. Stunned and all but certain our plan was over before it began, we followed her example and smushed our faces into the damp earth, hoping the sycamore would provide adequate cover. Be quiet, Ash said, mouthing more than whispering the syllables. The car, some ancient brown Honda leaking hip-hop from cheap speakers, seemed to stop directly in front of us. The driver, whose face was wreathed in smoke but given dim form by the orange tip of the slim cigar, leaned, or at least seemed to lean out of the window, and towards our tree. We're busted, whispered Kenny who was practically spooning Griff. Shut up, snapped Griff, whose right hand had already removed his Swiss army knife and flicked out the large blade. Probably an undercover cop, Jody offered, the volume of his voice drawing a murderous glare from Ash and a vicious pinch on the arm by Randy. Ouch, Jody shouted, thrashing in the grass and rubbing the spot where Randy had bruised if not broken the skin. Would y'all shut up? muttered Griff, kicking the ground and spraying both Bessers with a cloud of sycamore seeds and soil. The Honda, which had never actually braked, eased on down the street and eventually became a pair of blood-red brake lights, flashing once and then fading altogether as they drifted through the stop sign on the corner. Thanks a lot, said Jody, punching Griff on the soft side of his cleat. Got my eyes, you jerk! We scrambled to our feet and brushed ourselves off. Though the threat was gone, the driver's smoke still hung in the air above the glittering pavement. It smelled, to us, like grape jelly. I thought we were busted, said Randy, standing up and hawking a loogie to punctuate his point. Busted for sure, echoed Jody, fidgeting with the slingshot and firing his own loogie into the very spot of lawn still slick with Randy's phlegm. I just said that, barked Randy, and extending the knuckle of his middle finger, delivered a frog punch to Jody's upper arm so well executed that you could hear the dull echo of bone against flesh as it reverberated off the pavement. Guys, don't, Ash began to say, knowing even as she did that it was too late. Jody took all of three seconds to nurse the bruise before driving his knee into Randy's sciatic nerve. Though our dads called this savagely painful maneuver a charlie horse, our preferred nomenclature was a dead leg and shook with silent laughter as Randy struggled to remain standing. Someone, with Randy and Jody it was always hard to tell who initiated what, 
slap someone else in the face. And like that, the Besser boys were back on the ground, a blurred tangle of fists and feet and elbows. The Besser command of standard English curse words is not something I could replicate, even if I wanted to. I will say this, though. If you ever got to the point where you thought you knew every possible combination of profane language, you only had to witness a fistfight between them to behold a whole slew of crass innovations. The two of them rolled in the grass, yanking at each other's hair, driving their hard fists into flesh, their unzipped backpacks littering the lawn with everything from a claw hammer to a Tom Glavin rookie card. Kenny, our resident peacemaker, stood over them and performed an anxious little jig, wringing his hands and whispering through his teeth, You two stop it right now! I'm serious! Right now! While swiveling his head from side to side in search of a floodlight that would signal our demise. Kenny continued in his dance, but the Duggins, including myself, did absolutely nothing. We knew, as we had for some time, that the only way to end a Besser fight was to sit back and let it end itself. Like certain wildfires where involvement guarantees someone getting hurt and does little to hasten resolution, the best thing to do when Randy and Jody were decorating each other's bodies with contusions was to give them a little space and let the conflict burn itself down. We might have canvassed the surrounding houses, sure to get the jump if they were loud enough to wake any neighbors up, but we knew better than to intervene. Part of the problem with Rainy and Jody was their having been, as our father would say, cut from the same piece of cloth. Emotionally, both Besser boys were capable of tolerance, and at times even kindness, but aside from those occasional bursts of decency, both Randy and Jody were short-tempered, self-serving, and meaner than a pair of badgers backed into a corner. Anything, a wrong tone, a harmless taunt, even a poorly aimed sneeze, could send them on a rampage. While this coiled anger served as the underpinning for two prodigious athletic careers, made it rather difficult to achieve even basic goals if one, not to mention two of the Besser boys, was involved in the decision-making process. I once heard an adult, a schoolteacher no less, respond to the report that both Randy and Jody had been caught in some senseless act of vandalism by saying, Well, they're Bessers. What do you expect? Physically, only a couple inches and a dozen pounds set the two boys apart. Randy had a hulkish frame and the face of a man, buried down in the biscuit dough of his youth. His fists, when they hit you, felt like sledgehammers and left bruises the color of your favorite cough syrup. His eyes were so pale a green that in sunlight they took on the color of piss. And, true to the only ever whispered but never spoken nickname of Chocolate Chip, there was not an inch of flesh on him that wasn't covered in fudge-brown freckles. Jody, who was two years younger, looked the same, only smaller. Same linebacker body, same green-yellow eyes, same scab-pink skin ready to burst forth with freckles at the first ray of sunlight even the same ginger mess of hair that kicked up in the front and mashed down in the back regardless of the length. Looking at the two Besser boys, I often imagined a biscuit that had been split a little too quickly, leaving two halves that, while slightly different in size, were basically identical in composition. There was no getting around it. The Besser boys were rough company. Conveniently enough, their innate talents were the very things our parents had raised us to avoid. Fighting, cursing, cheating, 
and using competitive sports as an outlet to inflict pain. When it came to such forms of delinquency, the Bessers were in a league of their own. They were bad kids who were capable at any passing moment of very bad behavior. But, and this must be said and said with great emphasis, by God we love those hooligans. And whatever faults they might have had, only some of which can be explained by their turbulent upbringing, they were one of us. They were, by virtue of geography, but also of the free will afforded to any kid growing up in the suburbs, our neighbors and our friends. We weren't stuck with them. Far from it. We cherished their participation in our lives, overlooking the weaknesses and embracing the strengths. Of course, it didn't hurt that our fathers were thick as thieves, spending almost every night chain-smoking Marlboros on Jack Besser's porch, or walking around the block to try to atone for some deep-fried dinner item, or, most often, drinking cheap lager and watching reruns of ESPN until one or both came to the realization that the workday, with its salaried tedium, was just several hours away. Yes, the Besser boys were rough company, but they were our company. And in Cherry Creek, a lack of loyalty was about the only unpardonable sin there was. When after several minutes, Randy and Jody got tired of fighting, they called a truce, dabbed the blood away using the tails of their t-shirts, and turned their attention to Ash, as if nothing had ever happened. Time to vote, she whispered. Now here's how it's going to work. Y'all are going to close your eyes and I'll give you three options. Raise your hand when you hear the house you want to egg. Simple as that. Got it? Well, I'll tell you right now, my vote's for Mr. White's house, whispered Jody, picking up a flattened oatmeal cream pie that had fallen out of his bag during the scuffle and for some reason sniffing it. You would vote for Mr. White, said Randy, still out of breath from the scuffle. Mr. White's mental. You remember the time he chased Donnie Cook through the woods? Donnie said that psycho threw him over his shoulder and bit him in the hand when he tried to get loose. So, said Jody. So, genius, snapped Randy. There's plenty of unpsycho people out there. Why mess with Mr. White? You know he told Donnie that if he ever went in his yard again, he'd chop his nuts off and feed him that little Dotson. While the rest of us processed this information, Griff spit a loogie of his own and said, as if submitting an objective thought in a conversation about the weather, Donnie White's full of it. What's that supposed to mean? Randy said pawn at a bluish half-dollar-sized bruise on his cheek that was beginning to swell? It means, said Griff, enunciating each syllable a little more slowly than he needed to, that I talked to Drew White, and he said all his dad did was chase Donnie to the edge of the property. Said his dad never picked up Donnie or bit him in the hand. Oh, that's just Donnie being Donnie. You call me a liar, Randy said, and inflated his chest but did so from where he stood and utilized none of his other typical intimidation techniques. Randy had five years and fifty pounds on Griff, making Randy's hesitance far from incidental. There was, as always, a story. Several weeks earlier, Griff nearly sent Randy to the ER after Randy had decided to test Griff's warning that the next person who referred to him as Peanut would be the lucky recipient of a blow to the head with whatever item happened to be closest at hand. Why don't you like being called Peanut? Peanut, said Randy, his already narrow yellow eyes turning to slits in that sickening way they always did 
when he had made up his mind to mess with someone. Huh? Peanut? True to his word, because when was he ever not, Griff snatched up a nearby aluminum bat, took two large steps in Randy's direction, and quite literally knocked the smile off Randy's face. Like a puppet whose strings were suddenly cut, Randy dropped to the ground, hitting the earth with a thud. Our eyes moved from the side of his face, where a bruise was already appearing, to Griff, who had flicked the bat in a patch of monkey grass, turned his back on everything, and was walking in the direction of our home. As our mother would later relate, Griff strolled inside, sat down at the kitchen table, ate two bags of fruit snacks, and said, Alive and well, when our mother passed through and asked him how he was doing. The rest of us remained in the Besser's yard transfixed at the sight of our local Goliath laid out in the grass. Except for Blackout, a Cherry Creek favorite, in which we'd squeeze each other's chest until something like fainting set in, we had never seen an unconscious body. There was something about the angle of Randy's head, and the way his legs went one way but his body seemed to be going the other, that instilled in us the sense that this was a different trip than the ones we took during blackout. While a tear-soaked Jody ran inside to retrieve his mom, Ash knelt down and took his pulse using a method she'd gleaned from the babysitter's club. Is he... dead? I asked, my palms and scalp still tingling from the sickening sound of the bat against Randy's skull. Nah, Ash said, standing up and waving her hand at the air between us as if swatting away a persistent mosquito. He'll be fine. Worst case scenario, it's a concussion. Although not one of us knew what a concussion actually was, Ash's expertise bolstered our own, and assured of Randy's eventual well-being, we prepared to make our escape. Ryan Brodke, whose father was a chiropractor, shouted, My dad's a doctor. He'll know what to do. And shuffled away from the Besser's yard, as if taking a massive lead in preparation to steal second base. Within the minute, all the younger neighborhood kids, having gotten a look at Randy, scattered as well. That left just Kenny and us. And when Kenny ran away and assured us that he would pray for Randy, the three of us, having no reason to doubt him, felt absolved of the whole business and broke into a sprint, hoping like hell we reached our garage before Miss Besser reached Randy. Later that evening, Mrs. Besser showed up at our house. Having returned from the hospital with Randy in tow, she demanded from our parents a partial explanation for why the right side of her son's face looked like a trampled eggplant. Our parents stated the facts as they understood them, but when they asked Griff for his side of the story, Griff didn't even bother to look up, but rather continued toying with the cuticle on his left thumb. I told Randy what would happen if he called me Peanut, Griff said, nipping at the nail with his canine, and then, spitting a tiny chunk of flesh over his shoulder, added, Then he called me Peanut. Better look us in the eyes when you speak, young man, our mother said, administering a four-finger slap to Griff's thigh hard enough to jar him from his fixation. Then what happened, son, said our father, whose position in the room afforded him an unimpeded view through the French doors, across the den, and up to the television set, where his beloved Braves were mounting a bottom of the ninth rally against the Marlins. The three of us had been seated with our backs to the French doors, but between the muffled commentary echoing across the room and the subtle changes in our father's face, we'd followed the game well enough to know that Atlanta was down to its last out 
that Mark Lemke had reached first on a walk and that Chipper Jones was coming to the plate. What happened, Griff said, with an unimpressed finality that suggested the current line of conversation had exceeded its limit, was that I told Randy what would happen if he called me Peanut. And Randy called me Peanut. End of story. Griff returned to the cuticle. Well, okay then, Miss Besser said, an odd mixture of disdain and respect at work in her face as she sized up Griff's silent indifference. I think I see how it is. As my mother watched Griff, and Griff watched his index finger, we watched our father's fist tighten and then release. Chipper had hit a fly ball into foul territory, his second strike. Our parents, exemplary Southerners that they were, apologized profusely, offered to pick up the hospital bill, and assured Miss Besser that Griff's punishment would, in fact, fit the crime. Angie, I can't begin to tell you how sorry we... And here the old man, who up until then had maintained such an admirable facade, broke character by stopping mid-sentence and looking straight over Angie Besser's head just in time to see Chipper whip his bat around and tee off on a low fastball. The glorious crack of the bat, the ensuing roar of Fulton County Stadium, and Skip Carey's tremulous, that ball's hit hard deep to left field, followed by his euphoric, Home run! Home run! Braves win! Braves win! Braves win! To be fair, our father never had a chance. First he, then us, and finally Mrs. Besser, turned to watch old Chipper round the bases, his team having already emptied the dugout and the crowd giving themselves over to pandemonium. Eventually everyone in the room looked at our father, and he, insisting his innocence with two upturned palms and a vigorous shaking of his head, looked only at our mother, who seemed about as amused as someone walking barefoot over broken glass. Not a fan of Chipper, the Braves, or baseball in general, she threw her hands up, and left the room as the rest of us, especially our father, tried to think if there was anything left to say on the issue of Randy's face. Angie will talk to Griff and make sure this doesn't happen again, our father said, wincing as if stabbed in the kidney when our mother turned off the television. Having slayed her longtime rival, she returned to the room and laid a hand on Miss Besser's shoulder. Giving Griff her disappointed look, she said, We want to take care of that bill, Angie and you can tell Randy to expect an apology first thing tomorrow morning, okay? Miss Besser gave our mother's hand an affectionate squeeze, and for a moment her eyes lit up with something like an epiphany. Her lips curled upwards into a slight smile, and she ran a hand over her crisp brown-gray nest of hair. And it seemed, for whatever reason, like she might surprise us all by saying something profound. But then Miss Besser did exactly what Miss Besser had done so many times, when circumstances had been reversed, and it was a Duggins bearing a bruise from a Besser. That is, she removed a cigarette, fired it up with the precise motions of a pack-a-day practitioner, and through her magnificent stream of smoke, delivered the words which more or less embodied her parenting philosophy. I'm not too worried about it, she said. Boys will be boys. Since the incident, which everyone except Randy had since referred to as Griff's, calling his shot, the Bessers and the Duggins had been nothing less than congenial. All forms of play had carried on as if nothing had ever happened, 
and neither Griff nor Randy had made reference to the altercation. Still, there beneath the sycamore, an added tension was apparent for anyone who knew the backstory. The muscles in Griff's jaw flexed as if he was chewing gum, and his eyes bore down into Randy's in a way that said, If you need a bruise on the other side of your face to even things out, keep staring. I'll give you one for free. For a moment, everyone braced for the impending Griff-Randy rematch. But like a collared dog who remembers the electric shock delivered after crossing a preset border, Randy sucked his teeth, whispered some mild curse, and made no further effort to challenge Griff. Guys, said Ash, as close in her demeanor to an adult as she could possibly be without sucking the joy out of the situation, you're wasting your breath. Mr. White isn't even on the ballot. And Randy, Griff's not calling you a liar, he's calling you gullible. I'll explain the difference to you later. This is lame. Why do we have to have a frickin' ballot anyway? Jody asked, condensing the entire oatmeal cream pie into a tiny hard-packed pill, popping it into his mouth. We're supposed to be egging someone's house. Talking about a ballot feels more like school. This insight drew an affirmative grunt from Randy. A sigh from Kenny, and not so much as a blink from any one of the Duggins, immune as we were to Besser Wit. The true answer to Jody's question, which would not be the answer he received, was that neither Randy nor Jody could be trusted to choose a viable target. Given that power, either boy would meditate for all of seven seconds before blurting out the name of someone in Cherry Creek who, at that particular moment, was at the top of their shit list. They would choose Beanie Province who stuck a wiffle ball bat in the spoke of Jody's bike, dumping him face first onto the pavement. Or they would choose Mr. Stafford, who recently called Miss Besser during dinner to complain about her son's feeding bacon-wrapped laxatives to Geronimo, his collie. Believing egging to be some primal form of revenge, the Bessers would choose someone they didn't like, thereby sapping the prank of any dignity it might otherwise have. Although Ash would never be so blunt, especially not at that particular moment. The truth was that the Besser boys did not understand the nuances of Cherry Creek as well as we did. Having lived there since Griff was born, which itself was only a year or two after the development's inception, our lay of the land was unrivaled. We knew which yards you could cut through on foot. The Welches, the Fullers, Miss Henderson, Bobby Bryant, and practically all of Silver Street. Which yards you could cut through on bike. Coopers, the Baileys, the Lees, and if it hadn't rained, old lady Robinson, and which yards you couldn't cut through at all. Miss Soto hiding behind her white wood fence, Mr. Baxter dying behind his always drawn blinds, and our favorite family of snitches and snobs, the Schmitz. We knew which hills were best for bikes and which ones were best for sleds. We knew the location of six different spigots available for use at any time during a hot day or humid evening. We knew every dog, cat, and hamster on our block by its full name, and we even knew how to coax Garcia, the nastiest stray in Cherry Creek, if we ever needed to knock on Mikey Welch's door without getting our ankles bloodied up. And while we were all well acquainted with the places of Cherry Creek, we knew the people even better. We knew the crazy old Mr. Banks who went for walks in the evenings and watered his azaleas with a copper can wasn't all that crazy that in exchange for polite conversation, he would share a handful of butterscotch candy and a great story about his time in the military, or his trip to what he called the Far East. 
we knew that good old Frank Lawson, who was president of the HOA and deacon at First Baptist, wasn't all that good, and that if you were left alone with him for too long, his hair-covered hands would work their way from your shoulder to your lower extremities faster than you could say stranger danger. We knew that Kenny's dad, the reverend, could be counted on to try to save your soul, but would let you off the hook for a quick sinner's prayer, and that Mr. T.K. Ballard, whose ever-present Hardy's cup was filled with two-part sweet tea and one-part whiskey, would throw his size 12 shoe at any kid he deemed disrespectful. And that was just the adults. When it came to kids, we could fill a library with our knowledge. Were you to drop the name of any kid on any street in Cherry Creek, we could have told you their best and worst sport, make and model of their bike, the general state of their baseball card collection, their willingness to break if not bend a posted rule, and in most cases their curfew and what would happen if they missed it. What can I say? From the eastern boundary, where the pavilion and swimming pool lay ringed in pines, all the way down to the western edge where a dried-up creek and something like a forest backed up onto a highway, we knew our neighborhood. We knew it in the intimate, applicable way that any heir apparent should know what they, in their youthful optimism, believed to be their future kingdom. Of course, Ash didn't say any of that. Figured since Bester's chose the prank, Duggins should choose the targets, Ash said. Mr. Percy, Mr. Torres, and Miss Sullivan. Those are the choices. Now, unless there are any further questions, concerns, or prayer requests, I move that we... I still don't like that we're doing this, but if I have to vote, then I guess I'll vote on Mr. Torres, cut in Kenny, face scrunched up as if solving a complex algebraic expression. Kenny, I said. Just wait till we close our eyes, buddy. Yeah, Kenny, just wait until we close our eyes, okay? Jody, now my echo, remarked. Truth be told, if anyone tested the limits of your loyalty, it was not the Besser boys, but rather Kenny Sims, with his blindingly bright morals and squeaky-clean disposition. I should say that, by any normal measure of human decency, Kenny was the best of us. His gentle blue eyes, almost girlish physique, and thin blonde hair swept to the side in a decade-too-early style didn't win him much respect in, say, a game of kill the man with the ball, or even at a mid-morning loitering session outside of Wilson's. But if you knew Kenny, you had to admit that God had chosen a fitting physical vessel for the sweetest and most sensitive soul in three counties. Like all of us, he was equal parts nature and nurture. Just as he didn't have to look too hard to notice the trickle-down effect of anger and athleticism from Jack Besser to Randy and Jody, one could spend all of five minutes with Kenny's parents and understand completely how he came to be. Kenny's dad was a pastor at the local Presbyterian church, and his mom, now that she no longer homeschooled him, devoted her days to praying, quilting, and offering cups of Kool-Aid to neighborhood kids in tiny plastic cups with scripture written on the side and magic marker. While all our families went to great lengths to bury their respective skeletons and appear wholesome, the Sims family was actually wholesome without making any effort at all, they put the rest of the neighborhood to shame with their charity and goodwill. The only thing hiding in their closet, our father once joked, were extra Bibles. By all rights, young Kenneth should not have associated with any child bearing the name of Duggins or Besser. His father, 
Reverend Sims, who no doubt considered us lost souls from ungodly homes in dire need of his son's guidance, should have been wise enough to know that for every one time little Kenny pulled us up into the light, there were nine times when we dragged him down into our own brand of suburban darkness. When Kenny first appeared, seemingly out of nowhere, he seemed to us as a spotless lamb, unsullied by the filth of our world, and as a result, unfit to function in our universe. Go home, Ash had yelled at him that first day. Nobody wants to play with you. Go on home and pray or something. The Bessers lost themselves over that one. But later that night, while we brushed our teeth and ready for bed, I asked Ash about it. And after making sure Griff was out of the room, she said, You only get to lose your innocence once. And once it's gone, it's gone forever. After that, I joined Ash's efforts to save Kenny by pushing him away. This included ignoring him in the street, refusing to accept his constant invitations to come over and play, and once even going so far as to let him follow us on his bike all the way to Amico before ditching him in the presence of some suspect-looking teenagers. But, despite our campaign to protect his purity, Kenny refused to be scared off. The lure of the unattainable, combined with the sweltering boredom of summer in the suburbs, proved too tempting an elixir for his untainted mind. He stayed, was reluctantly allowed to participate in our games, endured a brutal two-week period of hazing, and in time became just as much a part of our group as anyone else. Although he was and always will be more saint than sinner, he kept his clear eyes open and learned a thing or two, watching our ways and adapting the way a sweet little house cat fakes tough in the presence of ferals. And I suppose it says more about our depravity than his faith, that it only took one summer to teach such an admirable Christian soul how to incorporate curse words into everyday speech, how to lie to an adult without getting caught, how to barter and sometimes bluff for better baseball cards, how to cheat in spades and five-card stud, how to steal candy from Revco, how to sneak into the pool after hours, how to build a ramp using wood you lifted from construction sites, how to melt plastic figurines using WD-40 and a lighter, how to throw and take a punch, how to tell both a good clean story and a downright dirty joke, and possibly most important of all, how to play competitive sports not for fun, as the balding burnouts down at the YMCA had taught us, but for glory and for victory, and for the knowledge that as far as athletics went, being a kid from Cherry Creek was a veritable badge of honor. This too bears repeating. We loved St. Kenny Sims and embraced his idiosyncrasies with the same sense of open-mindedness we demanded people employ when assessing one of us. <sighs> Let's try this again, said Ash. Everybody close your eyes. Kenny, quick to accept a rebuke, especially from a Duggins, nodded and waited with closed eyes for Ash to call out the options. And she almost did, before Jody slapping Kenny between his shoulder blades hard enough to produce the vicious little thwack that balsa wood makes when you bend it too far, said, Yeah, dummy, ain't a vote unless it's secret. Guys. If you just focus, Ash whispered, now please, close your... That's actually not true, Griff said, opening his eyes along with the rest of us. Is so, Jody shot back, learned in history class. Think about it. When grown-ups vote, they don't tell anybody who they voted for. 
It's a secret. Guys, we're wasting time here, Ash whispered again, the disappointment in her tone suggesting that she knew she had lost her audience and was close to scrapping the plan altogether. Well, how can that be, Griff said, screwing up his face in pseudo-vexation like he always did before delivering a low blow. Because my dad told me your mom voted for Ross Perot. He said your mom gave the election of that son-of-a-bitch liberal. How'd he know that, if everything's secret? Your dad called our mom a son-of-a-bitch, said Randy, ready and willing for a rematch with Griff if it meant protecting Angie Besser's good name. No, 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 said Ash, now exasperated. Jeez, Randy, you really don't listen well, do you? He called the president a son-of-a-bitch. And since a woman can't be a son... Your mother definitely can't be a son of a bitch. So even if he did call her a son of a bitch, it wouldn't have made any sense. Can, can we please just finish voting? You ever notice you never hear someone called a daughter of a bitch? Asked Jody, his freckled face as dazed as someone waking up from a month-long coma. Well, duh, fool, replied Griff. Everybody knows there's no such thing as that. You can either be a son of a bitch or just a plain old bitch. Those are the options. The Bible says you'll go to hell if you use that word, said Kenny. What word? Bitch? Griff said. No. Fool. Hold up. Who said that? Snapped Jody. Jesus did, said Kenny. Jody, scrunching his mouth up like he had just taken a sip of an ill-mixed suicide, looked down on Kenny and said, Well, I don't care what Jesus thinks. I only care what God thinks. Jesus is God, you dummy, said Griff. Guys, focus, Ash said. If we don't hurry up and vote, someone's going to see us out here and then we'll all be in trouble. Randy started snickering and said what to him must have seemed unbearably clever. So I guess you're going to hell now, aren't you, Kenny? Because you just said fool. And you said people who say that word are going to hell, Randy said, poking his meaty finger into Kenny's birdcage chest. Here hell sucks pretty bad. Hate it for you, scrub. Randy, that is not how it works, and you know it, lectured Kenny, in the same patient tone his father used when asking us not to throw rocks at the birds in his yard, or requesting that we not mock Kenny's video game collection. God doesn't care about your words. He cares about your heart. He cares about... Hold on, Kenny, cut in Jody. Griff, what do you mean when you said Jesus is God? That don't sound right. Not now, Jody, Griff said. Well, how does it work then, Kenny? How does God judge us? Jody, though, was nothing if not persistent. No, 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 I'm serious, Griff. That don't make no sense. How can Jesus be God when Jesus was a man? And didn't Jesus get killed? You can't kill God. He's invisible. Even I know that. I think you mean invincible, said Ash. That's what I said, replied Jody. I still locked on Griff. How can Jesus be God if Jesus was killed and God is invisible? Jody, Griff said, rolling his eyes and shaking his head. Show up to church every once in a while. It gets tiresome explaining everything to you. Go ahead now, Kenny. Wait, 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 said Randy, so pleased in his recent insight that his smile showed more gums than teeth. So what you're saying is that as long as I have a good heart, and y'all know I do. I can say whatever I want. 
Ash gestured me with her eyes, her face as much as saying, Can I please get some help here? Accordingly, I gave some thought to what gambit would get Kenneth, Griff, and both Besser boys off the abstract subject of religion and onto the very real, very pressing question of whose house to egg. And having found something viable, I very nearly spoke it. But Kenny, who looked ready to cry, raised his voice just above a whisper and waving his hands like a drowning man, says, God cares about the heart, but he also cares about the words. I can't explain it. I just know that all of you better stop cursing. I'm serious. You better stop before a God ties your tongue for good. My daddy grew up with a boy who has dared to take the Lord's name in vain. His friends bet him a butterfly yo-yo, and he did it. What happened, asked Jody. Well, let's just say the Lord's name was the last thing that boy ever said. Kenneth swung his clear blue eyes around the circle, allowing the solemnity of his face to rest on each person for at least a full second. What color was the yo-yo? Jody said. You missed the point, Jody, said Griff. What was the point? I think the point is that Kenny's story is bullshit, Randy said, smiling but also wincing as if something from the sky was on its way down to strike him. All right, then, Kenny said, taking two large steps back from Randy and shaking his head in an almost imperceptible manner. Don't say I didn't warn you. Crap. Dick. Damn. Piss. Shit. Screw. Jody said, and squinted upwards like someone trying to spot a falling star. God does not suffer fools, Kenny said. It's probably holding back because we're in our front yard. But I'll tell you this, I wouldn't pull that stunt out in the street. Your daddy's a fool, Jody said, slapped Randy's already outstretched palm. Kenny, miles away from the little lamb he was when he first moved into Cherry Creek, reminded us all of just how far he'd come by extending a single finger toward Jody's face and saying without an ounce of fear, My dad does not believe in violence. But if he did, He'd punch your old dad right in his fat gut. I swear my dad would hit your dad so hard it'd make your ugly little dog bleed. You want to bet, Jody said. Name it, Kenny said, brow furrowed and arms crossed just like we had taught him to. Guys, 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 Griff interjected, stepping in between Jody and Kenny. This is ridiculous. No point in talking about it, because there's no way your dads are actually going to fight. Oh, I know for a fact that mine will, Jody said. First of all, he was a four-timer at 215 pounds. And secondly, he could punch a hole right through drywall. I've seen him do it a couple times. And number three, he's been watching a Rocky Marathon all weekend. Slaps us around every time we pass him in the kitchen, and we're his own kids. Think about what he'd do to a freaking pastor. Focus, Ash yelled the sheer volume of her voice eliciting two dogs on different sides of the street to start barking. I'm tired of listening to y'all argue. That's not what I came out here for. Now, if y'all want to keep on bickering like a couple of little girls... Ash paused to allow the dig, which was, for boys in Cherry Creek, as dirty as digs got, to pierce the collective skin. Then be my guest. But I'm looking to get into something tonight. Enough of this kid stuff. No one dangled a carrot better than Ash, and it lit me up with a secret joy to watch all three of them lunge at it. 
childhood had been cast aside like a cheap trinket, and adulthood, with all its complicit mysteries, had been offered. There was nothing left to do but act on it or shut up. For real, Randy said, and for some reason licked his lips. <laughs> I'm getting tired of this kid stuff. I got places to be. That's right, Jody said. Places to be. Kenny and Griff both had the same dumbfounded expression, but chose in a miraculous feat of self-control to ignore the Bessers and give their full attention to Ash. All right now, Ash said, looking over both shoulders, as if something real was at stake, and every shadow represented a threat to it. On three, close your eyes. One, two, three. Our eyes were closed. Progress, finally was being made. Okay now, listen closely because I'm only going to say this once, Ash said, her voice dropping a full octave to achieve its gritty urgency. Raise your hand if you want to egg Mr. Percy's house. As we contemplated the candidate, a sound like the crunching of candy beneath a shoe rang out in our ears. The sound itself was not enough to peel back our eyelids, but Griff kicking the pavement and shouting, Crap! Put a halt in the process. What? I said. I dropped my egg, said Griff. And as he had since he was a child, thrust out his plump lower lip and began a period of pouting that would end, if history held true, either in blatant wallowing or unbridled rage. What? Ash said looking from the egg-slit grass to Griff's downcast face and back again to the grass. I said I dropped my egg. You deaf or something? Griff muttered, clearly not willing to elaborate on the how or why of this tragedy. <laughs> nice going, Butterfingers, Randy said, tossing up his own egg into the space between him and Griff and then using two fingers to snatch it with a deadly precision. Hearing this, Griff slumped down even further the already protruding lip beginning to tremble. Randy tossed the egg up several times, inspiring Jody to do the same. Butterfingers, said Jody, each of the words four syllables like a phrase in itself as they were parsed out over his machine gun laughter. And like that, I was pissed. Because here's the thing. In our own house, amongst our own family, I was meaner to Griff than the Bessers ever dared to be. When it was just the Dugginses, not a day went by that I didn't see some opportunity to remind him he was younger, dumber, and infinitely less adequate than me. I was, I don't mind admitting, a jerk. Calling him Butterfingers and rejoicing in one of his mishaps was, back at our house, par for the course. But out in the larger world of Cherry Creek, dynamics changed and watching Randy pour salt on poor Griff's wound, I suddenly became my brother's biggest advocate, bracketing, but just barely, the urge to kick Randy right in his scrawny Irish balls. Funny how family only asserts itself in the midst of an outside attack. How blood, not bond, justifies bullying. Slipping my egg into Griff's hand, I made a face at both Besser boys as if I was studying some freshly slain roadkill and in the most patronizing tone I had, said, Randy, I'm still waiting for you to have an original thought. Figure it's bound to happen one day, what you think? 
And Jody, just keep your mouth shut, you little jerk. That's all. Just do all of us a favor and shut up. What's got into you, Peach? said Randy, wise enough in his own way to recognize an older brother's duty. All right, eyes closed, Ash said, snapping her fingers in each of our faces and successfully reinstating the vote. We listened. Heads went down, eyelids closed. Okay, she said. Raise your hand if you want to egg Mr. Torres's house. For a moment it was quiet. You could hear the person to each side of you shuffling, but you were never sure if they were raising their hand or just moving around. Okay, Ash said, her voice back to its typical pitch, but no less serious in its tone. Final choice. Raise your hand if you want to egg Miss Sullivan's house. No sooner had the word house left Ash's mouth than we heard a sound that by then we could unequivocally identify as an egg smashing against the earth. Crap, said Griff. Self-same tone, self-same infliction. Again, I said, all familial love and loyalty, leaving my heart like a steady stream of water leaves a pricked balloon. Are you serious? You dropped it again? That's two, Griff. That's two eggs you've dropped now. Good night, son. Butterfingers is right. At this, the Besser boys exploded into staccato peals of high-pitched laughter, causing the already planted seeds of guilt and remorse inside my gut to crack forth into full-blown regret. I looked at Griff's lower lip and felt every bit the traitor I was. Leave him alone, Ash snapped, and forget the vote. We're wasting time here. We're going to do Mr. Percy's house. Executive decision. Let's go. Whoa, 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 Randy said, outstretching his massive arms as if he meant to scoop us up and pin us to the sycamore. Why, Mr. Percy? He's not a bad guy. Helped coach my team a few years back. Why, why not Mr. Torres? Mr. Torres is a perv. He whistles at high school girls from his porch. Tell you right now, Mr. Percy would never do that. You know what? You're right, Randy, Ash said and for a moment appeared so much to agree with him that a big smile stretched out across Randy's face. You are absolutely right. Mr. Torres is a pervert. But what you failed to mention about your old coach is that he is a bigot. And between a pervert and a bigot, I'll egg the bigot every time. What's a bigot? Griff asked. Same as a racist, I answered. You talking about that flag, Coach Flies? Randy said. Cause that's heritage. And it got nothing to do with racism. What flag? Griff asked. The rebel flag, I answered. Which one is that? You remember the sticker on the back of Grandpa's truck? Yeah, it's that one. And that's racist? Why? Well, because of what it stands for. What's it stand for? Once asked, the question just hung, unaddressed in the ether. And since no one present truly knew how to answer it, maybe it was fitting that the least qualified to speak was the first and only person to attempt a response. Y'all know Emily Woodford from that yellow house over on Maple Court? She accused me of being a racist, said Jody. Ain't that some bull crap? What'd you do, asked Griff. Pete on the Wang Snowman, replied Jody. Does that make you a racist, asked Griff. Duh. Randy said, 
throwing his hands up at Griff. The Wangs are Chinese. Actually, they're from Korea, Ash said, and seemingly before the blank faces ever flashed in her direction, regretted the interjection. But did you pee on their snowman because they were Chinese? Asked Griff, rubbing his chin like they do in the cartoons when they're thinking deeply on something. I don't think so, said Jody. I think I just had to pee. Saw the snowman and put two and two together. Common sense, right? I do think it's a little weird that Lynn eats seaweed and wears those shirts with all the Chinese writing on them. But no, I, I didn't do it because of race. I like that kid. I pretty much like everybody. I don't know, said Kenny. It's not looking good. I hate to break it to you, but you might actually be a racist. How do you figure, said Jody. Oh, it's just this stuff I see when I watch the news with my dad, said Kenny. Being a racist used to mean doing a lot of really awful things on purpose. But it's different now. Now just one thing can make you a racist. Doesn't even matter if that one thing was an accident or a misunderstanding. Dang, muttered Jody. That's harsh. Maybe I am a racist. Guess I gotta start watching the news. Just play it safe, bro, Randy chimed in. From now on, only take a leak in white yards. That's the safe move, Kenny agreed. Even though God is colorblind, I'd hate to see you become an accidental racist. Ash, who owned novels by Richard Wright, and who listened to Marvin Gaye, and who was, last time I checked, the only white kid at South Pines Middle who actively spoke to and sat with African-American peers, said nothing during the discussion. With all her knowledge of blacks and whites, not to mention the nuanced history between them in the South, she just sat back and let us talk our nonsense. But growing up in Cherry Creek was like that. Those who knew didn't speak. Those who spoke didn't know. Trust me when I tell you, that Mr. Percy is no accidental racist, said Ash. He's everything that's wrong with this part of the country. And throwing a few eggs on his house is the least we can do, given all those disgusting things he's done and said. Fair enough? It was. And in unison, we mumbled our assent and started walking toward Mr. Percy's house. All said and done, we had wasted almost half an hour completing a vote that should have taken 60 seconds. That was, though, Classic Cherry Creek. Nothing ever went according to its plan. And after a while, you had so much fun wasting time, you stopped distinguishing between the destination and the journey. Mr. Percy lived a couple of streets over, and the walk there was a good one. For one, it was quiet. More importantly, though, our sense of solidarity came back to us. Instead of fighting against each other, we began working together. The Bessers keeping a lookout while Kenny darted from bush to bush, Griff helping Randy when he went down hard on a freshly watered lawn. Everybody in tune with everybody, and nobody fighting or fussing or talking about things above our heads as we cut through the night towards our common goal. We made good time and took cover in the shrubs adjacent to Mr. Percy's house. For a moment, just like back in the Bessers' yard, we were perfect in our black, wordless huddle. But then, as if a lack of movement cultivated some kind of pettiness between us, discord resumed. It began when Jody, who'd been gloating ever since Griff busted the two eggs, started tossing his own egg up in the air and seeing how close it could come to hitting the ground before he snatched it. 
Given his phenomenal hand-eye coordination, Jody probably could have played the game all night and never dropped the egg. Enter Randy. We'd only been at Mr. Percival's house for a minute, which meant Jody had not been playing the game for more than 30 seconds, when Randy got the bright idea to intercept the egg on its descent. And given Randy's even more phenomenal hand-eye coordination, the joke should have come and gone with very little collateral damage. What actually happened, though, was that when Jody tossed the egg up, Randy clutched at it from the top at the exact same time Jody's hand was thrusting upwards. Their hands came together in a perfect clap, and the egg oozed out in long, yoky ropes from between their still-fused palms. You freaking butthead, Jody barked, and wiped what looked to be the lion's share of the yoke into Randy's eyes. Was an accident, Randy said, and as soon as he'd wiped enough egg out of his eyes, smashed his own egg directly on top of Jody's head. Kenny tried to step in between him, but it was no use. Down they went, the same dim and vicious blur as before. Right there in the shrub, so close to Mr. Percy's porch that I could see his television set through the bay window, and had it been turned on, could have told you what he was watching. So close I could count the stars on his infamous flag. We watched as the Bessers went to war on each other's bodies. Fists swung, feet flew, all the old familiar curses and grunts rose from the ground. And to their credit, both Randy and Jody somehow managed to roll around on the ground and beat each other senseless at full speed, while also keeping their voices at a whisper. We waited, one eye on Percy's place, the other on the Besser boys. When it was over, Jody got to his feet. And though it was caked in yoke and tears and grass and sweat, his face announced, as it always did when Randy took things too far, that he was done for that day and that after delivering a final verbal blow to Randy, he would sprint at full speed, crying mama, or just shaking with great silent sobs, but never, not for anything, stopping, until he reached Angie Besser's arms. Jody, we all saw, was done. Randy used the bottom of his shirt to clean his face and whispered something under his breath that the rest of us did not understand. He composed himself just in time to see his brother close his eyes inhale deeply, and without once wavering, say, I hate you, Randy. I hate everything about you. I hate your stupid haircut, which, by the way, looks like a mushroom. I hate your stupid face, your stupid voice, your stupid attitude. I hate your man boobs that jiggle every time you walk, although I guess I kind of love them, too, because it means I get to laugh every time I see you run. I hate you so much that I could go on all night about the things I hate. And I hope you know that. I hope you know I laugh at you all the time in my head. You think you're so cool, but I swear I spend half my life just laughing at how dumb you are. So thank you for ruining my night. Don't follow me, and don't you dare try to talk to me at home. You are officially shunned, you butthead. We look from Jody, who sometime during his diatribe had assumed a Shakespearean posture. Shoulders thrown back, chest puffed out, and chin lifted to a ridiculous angle. Over to Randy, whose face had changed from a typical post-fight angst to a near-psychotic level of rage. Taking two steps towards Jody and looking like he might strangle him, Randy said, Jody, I swear to... Shunned! Jody yelled. 
turning on his heel and extending his left arm and left hand, palm up, apparently in an effort to give a visual representation to his concept of shunning. Only Jody's palm, which was meant to stop several inches short of Randy's face, overshot its target and landed on Randy's nose, a crunch sound and sizable splurt of blood on the pavement, cueing Jody's dead sprint departure. Sure by then that somebody had heard us and that floodlights, if not blue lights, would soon bathe the whole scene, we stayed crouched down in the shrubs and watched Randy chase Jody. Neither boy was fast, but both moved pretty quickly that night. Safe in our leafy sanctuary, we watched until both Besser boys receded into the darkness, and it was just the three of us and Kenny. So how many eggs are we down to? I asked, already knowing the answer, but somehow hoping that Ash had an ace tucked up her sleeve for precisely such moments. Just one, she replied, holding hers up for the rest of us to see. Nobody spoke then. We just sat there in the grass and stared at the egg in Ash's palm, an egg which seemed inexplicably larger and more precious now that the other four were gone. And as we did, a whippoorwill called out from the copse of oaks behind Mr. Percy's house. The sound, which was unbearably lonely compared to the twittering daytime symphonies of sparrows and robins and jays, felt less like a song and more like a question that the four of us needed to answer. What now was the gist of it? Things aren't going like you thought they would. So what are you going to do now? Kenny answered first. Look, I'm sorry, guys, he whispered, backpedaling away from the shrubs in slow motion. I, I really am sorry. I wanted to do this with you, but I don't know. Something about it doesn't feel right anymore. I, I gotta go. I'll see you tomorrow, though. G- good night and using the same route the Bessers had taken, Kenny Sims jogged for several hundred yards beneath the street lamps and then disappeared around a bend. One egg, I said, more thinking aloud than actually addressing anyone. We still going to do this with just one egg? All the old familiar threats returned in a single rush. The breeze picked up, the darkness thickened, and the skull-like houses, especially Mr. Percy's, seemed to double in size. It was, once more, Halloween. We turned our gaze to the street, half expecting the Honda to return, this time with malicious intent. Go home, was still the night's advice, and given all that had, and hadn't happened, since we first returned from Wilson's Five and Dime, and devised the now-ruined scheme, yes, sir, seemed the appropriate response. Maybe it was the loss of Kenny and the Bessers. Maybe it was some conviction that had been present all along that was now finally working itself loose and rising to the surface of our consciousness. But the collective feeling at that moment was one of defeat. I, like Griff, deferred to Ash's judgment. But there was little doubt in my mind that it would be, let's go home. We'll do this another night, or not. But this didn't work out like I thought it would. Let's go home. Only Ash never said that. Instead, it was Griff who spoke. It was Griff who, after smiling his old smile and doing a double pump with his eyebrows, whispered, One is better than none. We watched those words change everything. And something's better than nothing, Ash replied, 
winking at Griff and pointing a kiss on the egg's incandescent shell. And in a gesture we never would have made in front of the Bessers or even Kinney, the three of us huddled together and locked hands like a team about to take the field. Lacking a chant, we simply held on to each other for several seconds, and then sensing exactly what needed to happen, gave each other's hands a squeeze and released. Griff should be the one to throw it, I said. Griff, who had recently tried his hand at catcher and had adopted the catchphrase, don't run on the gun, peeled back his sleeve and brandished a vein-covered bicep the size of a lime and the density of a stone. Your shot, said Ash, passing the egg from her palm to Griff's. Carrying the egg in both hands as if it were an object of infinite value, Griff shuffled in front of Mr. Percy's house. Still a skull, still savagely creepy with its flag flapping softly in the night breeze, the house had shrunken back down to the size of something you could, on a night like that, overcome. As Griff stood there and considered his possibilities, I leaned over to Ash and said something I'd been holding on to all night, something which up until then I could not have put into words. I whispered, Why do we do this kind of stuff? I had in mind not just egging Mr. Percy's house, but everything. The incessant fighting, the misguided conversations, the games with no purpose and the contests with no winners, the Bessers with their unchecked aggression, and Kenny with his impractical kindness, and most of all the pretense that we were anything more than a bunch of bored suburban kids waiting for our lives to begin. I had in mind our very existence in Cherry Creek. It's true that I loved it there, but I needed to hear a reason why. I needed someone who loved me to look down on all of it, and with both tenderness and truth, explain some small part of its mystery. And without taking her eyes off Griff, Ash gave me precisely what I wanted. She said, for the memories, I suppose. Griff whipped the egg back behind his head. His form, as always, was impeccable and I knew that this was the moment we'd been waiting for all night, the moment in which some small measure of justice would be delivered to the darkness all around us. And yet, Ash's response had seized my thoughts, and for some reason, I stopped watching Griff and slumped back down behind the shrub. I looked instead into Ash's face. With the black beanie pulled down over her forehead and so much shoe polish applied to her face, she seemed at that moment a stranger. I stared at her, trying to see the girl I had grown up with, the girl with the room just down the hall from my own, and finally finding her, I whispered, Yeah, but why? Why would we remember something like this once we're grown? Why would we remember something as dumb as this? Her response, which she muttered at the exact moment the egg left Griff's hand, and began its perfect line toward Mr. Percy's window, was something I would never forget. The egg exploded against the glass. Griff raised his index finger to his mouth and blew its tip as if it were the smoking barrel of a pistol. And the last thing I heard before we ran away was this. Think about it, Dave. After all that time, what else will there be? Thanks so much for slowing down and listening up with us through this long story. Thanks to Dan Leach for sharing it with us. And thanks, as always, to my co-producer, Colleen Stewart. We're back in two weeks with a Father's Day episode. In the meantime, please rate and review us and help spread the word about secondhand stories.
Thanks.